This episode of the Policy Viz podcast is brought to you by the Maryland Institute College of Art. MICA's professional graduate program in information visualization trains designers and analysts to translate data into compelling visual narratives. Benefit from the resources of a premier college of art and design while learning online. Earn your information visualization degree in just 15 months. Expert faculty includes Andy Kirk, John Schwabish, Marissa Peacock, and Rob Rolleston. Learn more at mica.edu slash mpsinviz. Welcome back to the Policy Viz podcast. I'm your host, John Schwabish. This week on the show, I'm very happy to be pleased by friend, senior graphics editor at Scientific American, Jen Christensen. Jen, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, John. Jen, really great to see you or talk to you again. How are things at Scientific American? They're going well. We just closed an issue of the magazine, which, uh, you know, we're still on this monthly cycle for the print issue that, that then has this other kind of weekly noise and web news pieces going on. But, um, but we definitely kind of have that exhale after the monthly issue goes out. I was, I was wondering, do you get to exhale? Like, is the exhale like a couple of minutes or is it like a couple of hours? It's, a, it's probably more like a couple of minutes these days. In the past, it was a couple of hours, but now uh, you must feed the web beast. <laughs> you know, you kind Ever of... Hungry. Sort of yeah, Ever hungry. Yeah, yeah. You, you sign off on the print proofs, and then you take a few breaths, a few slugs of coffee, and turn attention to web. And, and the next issue, too. Right, so, right, yeah. of course. Well, can we start by talking a little bit, maybe about yourself a little bit, introduce yourself for those who, those who don't know you, and then um, maybe you can start talking a little bit about the team at Scientific American and what it takes to sort of pull together a graphic, either for the print or for the web version. Sure. Yes. Um, so as you mentioned, I'm senior graphics editor at Scientific American. Um, I actually came out of the tradition of science illustration. Uh, so I studied geology and art then merged the two in science illustration. I actually interned at Scientific American um, in around 96 um, and started working there in the, in the late 90s. Um, left for a job at National Geographic, so I was, I was um, doing art direction and then design there. Freelanced for a bit and then found myself right back around at Scientific American, so where now I do um, exclusively graphics. When I first started there, I was doing um, art direction of like entire kind of articles. Uh, but now uh, we've kind of reconfigured things so that we have more um, singular roles. So um, I work on the graphics. Um, well, I guess I should start with saying that there's six of us now in the art department. Okay. Um, there's my boss, the design director, Michael Mrack. Um, an art director who lays out the print magazine and commissions the editorial illustrations, kind of the opening art, that sort of thing. We've got an online art director who manages the look of what's going on there, a photo editor, um, and then me, the graphics editor. And then just about a year ago, we added an assistant graphics editor, which I'm thrilled about. Um, (laughs) So, yeah. So Amanda Montanos now and I are sort of the two, we're the graphics team. There's two of us now, um, which which is fabulous. How does the process work? Are you pitching stories? Are stories being sort of passed down to you and then, and then you're pulling it all the way through? Because what's really interesting, I think, about Scientific American is that the graphics and the articles are so closely woven together. Right. You know, there's two general categories to the kinds of pieces that we develop graphics for. There's the news items and then longer feature articles. So there's sort of two different approaches to those. Um, 
the news items are what generally go up online and they're shorter and um, uh, snappier pieces in the print magazine as well. And those, I mean, we have weekly news meetings with the editors. The text editors all have specific content beats. So they're proposing, you know, they're keeping an eye on what's going on in their area of specialty and proposing news pieces. Amanda is the primary point person for those news pieces. So she sits in on those news meetings, proposes graphics or responds to requests for them. Um, And those sorts of things happen in about a week. Um, They're usually fairly focused on um, a data set that's already been identified. Um, For the features and the articles that end up with a print magazine, those are a bit of a longer process. Um, We're generally working with um, with a scientist as an expert author. Mm-hmm. So we ask them for ideas, but then we also just kind of go through um, their past publications and and then I'll uh, propose some ideas as well based on the preliminary manuscript. But then we work pretty closely with the, the text editor, the um, expert author, and myself um, in sort of uh, developing a graphic concept and kind of going through them for fact-checked and, mm-hmm. and, and feedback. Right. Um, how is that experience or how is that relationship when you're working with the experts, when you're working with the scientists? And, and how do you sort of walk them through this idea that the research article you publish in the academic journal is going to be look and be a little bit different when it comes up in Scientific American? Yeah, it's interesting. There's usually one of two responses. Either the, the scientist is like, well, yeah, it's, you know, it's a different, <laughs> different yeah, yeah. type of um, audience and that sort of thing. And they're really excited to be a part of, um, you know, having somebody else kind of take a fresh look um, and, and revisualize their work. And then I think others are um, maybe a little confused as to why we're not just um, doing exactly um, how they published it. You know, sort of makes sense. I mean, they, they know their information better than anyone else, but uh, and sometimes it's kind of hard to take a few steps back and realize that, uh, well, you know, to extend that message to another audience, we might need to do some things like um, shake out some jargon and, and think about different graphic forms. Right. Um, and so if you could ask the research, the scientific community at large, like if there was one thing you'd want them to do, so that to make your job easier and make your life easier, like what would that one thing be? Well, if you asked me about, uh, I don't know, a couple of years ago, I would say free your data from PDFs. But, <laughs> but actually recently, you know, generally because we, we're asking for the uh, raw data in most cases, um, and, and more and more often, they're not just even coming as, in as Excel spreadsheets, but we're actually getting CSV files as mm-hmm. well. So um, I think folks are, are more and more savvy about that, right. um, which makes sense. But uh, so that's nice. So you don't have to worry about that now. But I think um, it's interesting. And, you know, and I'm an outsider looking in, but I look at a lot of scientific papers and um, there seems to be kind of two camps. One is really embracing new tools and, and thinking through data visualization and sort of as a designer, and clearly, you know, there seems to be maybe like the newer wave of graduate students that are that end up being the ones that I correspond with sometimes are really savvy and um, in a lot of these new tools. But then there's also kind of a set of folks who sort of, you know, do the figures because you're supposed to have the figure in the, or at least this is my perception you know, as an outsider. You're supposed to have a figure to display your data in your paper because that's what you do. Right. But um, but there's yeah. not really a sense that there's a critical eye being put on them. It's like you know if your data is not continuous, then maybe you shouldn't use that form. You know, yeah. just think about it. It's okay if you're using a bar chart or a line chart. Those are great graphic forms. 
but just kind of look at it with a fresh eye and try to determine which one of those might make the most sense for yeah. your particular data set. Yeah. So, so that's uh, just kind of looking at uh, the graphics rather than just uh, churning them out. Um, on the other hand, that leaves room for us to add value as journalists, you know, <laughs> we're, so a bit selfishly, sometimes I'm, <laughs> I'm glad when I stumble upon something that can be improved upon because right. I can add something to this conversation, I guess. Right. I want to turn back a little bit to your experience because you had mentioned that you kind of came out of the design, the science illustration world. And so I'm curious now how you're working more with the scientific side um, and with the data and, and creating graphics. What was that transition like? I know you had written a, a piece about this on the Scientific American blog, but I'm curious about, about how you feel about that transition is going from sort of more of a as illustration design side into more of the, you know, maybe a little bit richer or, or deeper with the data and with the science. Well, it's interesting because actually in college, I did study geology. So I do have, you know, and actually my thesis was in the sciences. So it was a oh. geology thesis. Um, so I have, I, you know, I know just enough about statistical measures and things mm-hmm. to sort of understand that there are highly loaded words and that certain <laughs> things mean very specific things. And there's certain tests that you should run things through before you can say things. And, but I don't recall enough of that mm-hmm. or I didn't stay on top of it long enough. I'm not actively like, you know, running, running the stats on anything. Right, right. But it's nice to have just enough knowledge about that for me to then know what kinds of what questions to ask mm-hmm. at this stage. And also for me to know that I can't just, you know, download some data from an open portal and sort of, you know, just put the information out there and declare it, you know, here's, here's the answer people. Cause I realize that there's a lot more. Right to it than that. Um, so I probably know just enough to keep me hopefully out of trouble. Yeah, just enough <laughs> to be dangerous. I mean, that's really yeah. interesting. You know, here and there we see some issues with let's call it data journalism. Uh, we see some issues with, you know, maybe this statistic wasn't presented uh, accurately or appropriately. Do you sort of feel like there's a place for journalists to learn some of these skills, maybe sort of take a step back and, you know, just learn enough to be dangerous. You know, not everybody needs to step, you know, we really don't need everyone to be a statistician, but like learn enough statistics, learn enough data analytics to just be dangerous and just be able to, you know, have that keen eye of what's, you know, maybe this doesn't look quite right. Uh, I don't know. This gets a little into scary territory. Yeah. I feel really fortunate in that I cover scientific content. And so most of the projects I work around have already been analyzed. Yeah. Um, now there's, you know, the argument that they need to be analyzed again and again, because we need to be skeptical when looking at results and things should be replicated and reproduced and, and, um, you know, to make sure things are right. But I, I, I'm working with, um, information that's already gone through at least one filter, Mm. um, and a peer review and that sort of thing. So I worry a little less about that. Mm -hmm. Um, but I get really nervous when I'm asked to sort of jump into, you know, a, an investigative project, um, knowing, you know, if, if, if there's not that kind of filter going yeah. on, cause I don't, I can't bring that like to the table. I know what a few, few things that need to happen, but I'm not um, actively practicing that. These sure. days. So, but it is, it is kind of a scary territory. Yeah. Um, again, I'm just, I just feel really fortunate that I'm working with scientific content that's already going through some yeah, of going through that. Right. Yeah. Um, you had also mentioned this balance between, the online part and the print part. Um, can you talk a little bit how the the online piece of your job and and how you and and your teammates sort of think about how to publish things online and whether that differs between the desktop experience and the mobile experience? 
Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, actually, just over the last year, we've really been ramping up. We had a new web design um, that unveiled, I guess, just about a year ago now. And that was when um, then Amanda was brought on so that we could start to expand and do more um, responsive graphics. And we need to be thinking about uh, making all of our print material readable on, uh, you know, if, if somebody who subscribes to the magazine and wants to read it on their phone instead of the print version, we need to make sure that they can view it there as well. So it's been pretty interesting having to think about every graphic and illustration in terms of, okay, here's how we'll play it out on a spread. You know, we have all this real estate, we can do this beautiful, big, lush illustration, but how does that reconfigure so that somebody can actually get something meaningful out of it on this, you know, on their cell phone as yeah. well? Yeah. So um, it just means that at the very beginning of every project, we're thinking in terms of how might this play out in three different ways. Mm-hmm. We're doing a lot of scrolling, you know, a lot of um, recomposing for, and then just having th- people scroll through things. But we're looking at trying to figure out other ways of approaching that problem as well, maybe with animated video, um, motion animation, that sort of thing. So. So when you're thinking about moving a static piece from the print version to the online version, are you thinking how can we make this interactive? Or you think just how is the, what is the best way someone's going to view this? I wonder whether you approach it like, do we need to have a chart that has interactivity because it's online? Or does a static version work just as well? We just need to be thinking about it being responsive and people being able to see it clearly on their phone or on their computer. Yeah, number one right now for us is to have it, you know, a static version that is legible and makes sense and you can see all the information. Um, when we're going from kind of a print mentality towards the web. Um, But for a lot of these news items, um, in particular, a few pieces that Amanda's working on, she's starting to bring some D3 chops to our game. And Mm so, um, and there the interactivity is more about allowing the reader to, um, you know, see the numbers behind it, maybe go to a, you know, a data link, that sort of thing. So, um, so right now we've kind of paused a little bit on doing really robust interactives until we at least make sure that people can read the information and the punchline um, that we're delivering in print. And then we're starting to kind of try to layer on a little bit more where it makes sense, um, but not just for the sake of interactivity. Right. How does the responsive design affect the way you think about, especially the print part, as you move it from, you know, sitting in a magazine versus an on, uh, an online format where you know things need to be responsive for distance, different screens and and mobile and tablets and all this fun stuff that we have now? Right. You know, I used to rely when developing print projects a lot on um, somebody being able to see like a before and after state at the same time. Mm-hmm. So can immediately kind of flick their eyes back and forth. And now it's like I have to keep in mind that they've scrolled past that. Wow, yeah. And they're probably not going to go return to that spot. So um, it becomes a lot more of trying to realize what cues you need to leave in if you want them to compare something before and after maybe you know are we going to have to ghost it and keep it in the second panel or um so it's just kind of thinking about through time rather than across space um right but we don't want to um, compromise the print product either we want people to get the best of what they love out of print which is sometimes these huge lush spreads yeah highly detailed so it's a a balancing act yeah i wonder i mean the traditional audience for a place like scientific american you know like national geographic that seems to be a print first audience 
So do you find that the audience is moving along with you, sort of transitioning over to the to the online, or it's still sort of a print-first audience and you're sort of, for the most part, especially for the longer pieces, as you mentioned, you're thinking first print and then think first about print and now we're going to try to, you know, think about a, a great way to make this, you know, on an online platform. No, I mean, well, we're pushing more and more to thinking digital first, mm-hmm. um, but I think there's still a two-pronged thing. We have, as I understand it, and this may have changed, we have, you know, slightly different uh, demographics for each of those two products. Mm. Um, and we do have, um, you know, a lot more content being refreshed daily on the website, and that's where we're trying to fold in more graphics. So I think it really is project dependent. Like, is this a quick news piece that we want as many people as possible to see as quickly as possible? And it might not even be destined for print. Then we'll come at it with a very different mentality than sort of a, here's a crux story on the Higgs boson that Mm. is going to go down in the archive as being written by the author who discovered it, you know, and we need to have a kind of a definitive print piece for record. Right. Um, so, so it really kind of depends on um, the project, actually. Yeah, that's interesting. Let me ask one last, one last question. You mentioned the, the archiving of the project in the print version. There seems to be more and more discussion about how we're sort of losing things that show up on the internet. You know, the, the technology disappears or changes and then the project isn't renewed or it's not saved in the right way. How do you and how does Scientific American sort of more generally think about the archiving process of things that are, you know, perhaps these things that are just going online. It's a short turnaround thing. So have, have you thought about that archiving process? Yeah. And actually we're trying to develop kind of more concrete uh, kind of procedures for that now. I mean, our print stuff all gets archived and if we're doing digital versions of the print piece, then it's less of a concern. But some of these pieces that we're doing digital only, we do want to have them um, set aside. So we are kind of saving out different file types mm-hmm. um, and we're starting to try to figure out how do we um, go ahead and, and save those digital files um, in a way that kind of parallels our print piece. And this is a subject actually that's really near and dear to my heart because I spend a lot of time going through the archive. I'm sort of a geek about it. And it's interesting. I just found out that um, one of the first computer-to-plate print magazine issues Mm -hmm. ever um, was March 1995, Scientific American. Oh, wow. But it was a special issue, so it's not part of the usual print run. It's not in the digital archive, which I find so yeah. ironic. Yeah. It's like I can't find it digitally. I had to go like on eBay and get a print copy of it. And yet it was sort of a historic um, moment uh, when, uh, you know, it was the first kind of all desktop publishing issue at the magazine. Right. Um, so I worry that, yeah, there will be these little black holes right. of, of content that we're just going to lose. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, very interesting. Uh, I want to talk about one last thing before I let you go. Um, at your talk at Visualize last year, you talked about the Joy Division cover. So it was a great talk. I thought uh, maybe you could give folks a quick uh, summary of that talk. If you're not familiar, uh, Joy Division's uh, Unknown Pleasures album cover has a, what, a mysterious history up until your uh, first-person research, right? Oh, well, thanks. Yeah, actually, um, it's a, I, I love this topic. A lot of folks knew that it was a, a data visualization of a pulsar. Uh, radio frequency signals, um, but uh, and it had been kind of traced back to most notably the Cambridge Encyclopedia of Astronomy, and a couple of folks had found it in the Scientific American, actually where it ran in 1971. 
the um, the album cover was 79, uh, mm-hmm. designed by Peter Seville. He saw it in the Cambridge Encyclopedia. And again, a few folks have jumped down that rabbit hole and have found other occurrences of it. I really wanted to get to the bottom mm-hmm. of this. So um, I ended up doing a, a fair amount of research and ended up at the Cornell um, Rare Book Room looking through student PhD theses from the early 70s, late 60s, early 70s, and found the original in a thesis by uh, Harold Kraft, who um, was a student at Cornell at the time. He later became a a director at Arecibo, the radio observatory, and then back at Cornell in a higher-up role. But I I was fortunate enough to have a chance to sit down and talk with him about the data visualization and how he created it. Uh, he wrote a program in Fortran that output that stacked plot, but it's just a really kind of fun, full circle um, piece where a data visualization becomes a part of pop culture. And then it was nice to kind of bring that back around to well, what was the original intent um, uh, of the piece? Right. Cool. Well, it was a great talk, and uh, I think those videos will come out any day, and um, I will make sure that lots of people get to go see it because it's a it's a really fascinating story. So, Jen, thanks so much for coming on the show. This has been really interesting. Great. Great talking with you, John. Thanks. Um, And thanks, everyone, for tuning in to this week's episode. Uh, As always, if you have comments or questions, please let me know. So until next time, this has been the Policy Viz Podcast. Thanks for listening. This episode of the Policy Viz Podcast is brought to you by the Maryland Institute College of Art. MICA's professional graduate program in information visualization trains designers and analysts to translate data into compelling visual narratives. Benefit from the resources of a premier college of art and design while learning online. Earn your information visualization degree in just 15 months. Expert faculty includes Andy Kirk, John Schwabish, Marissa Peacock, and Rob Rolleston. Learn more at mica.edu slash mpsinviz.